1896, after the best part of a lifetime of writing mostly traditional classical romantic works like symphonies, concertos, and string quartets, the great Czech composer Antonin Dvořák suddenly produced a flood of descriptive tone poems, orchestral fairy tales with titles like The Water Goblin, The Noonday Witch, The Wood Dove, and The Golden Spinning Wheel. Why this sudden rush? Well, it could have been partly because Dvořák's great champion, Brahms, was seriously ill and known to be in his final decline. Brahms was the great classic romantic, the opponent of the new school under Liszt and Wagner, who declared that classical forms like the symphony were completely out of date and championed music drama and symphonic poem hybrid forms. What would Brahms, the great patrician conservative classicist, have made of lush, romantic music like this. Notice the harp at the end there. Well, a harp in a symphonic work would have had Brahms almost apoplectic. Now, this is hard to explain today, but there are two schools of music in Brahms's lifetime that were really more like enemy camps. The Brahms side, pure classicism, absolute music, and Wagner, who stood for music of the future, the total work of art, bringing art, literature, and music back together. It's hard to credit, but there were even fights between rival groups at concerts. Sibelius, who was a student in Vienna at the time, remembered getting caught in a fight at a Bruckner concert and twisted his ankle. Well, perhaps Dvorak also needed to show that he really was a proper Czech national composer, too. There had been criticisms from some quarters suggesting that he was too much in awe of the Viennese classical tradition, the Austrian dominant classical tradition represented by Brahms. So Dvořák chose some folk ballads of a hugely influential 19th century Czech poet called Karel Jaromir Erben. And one of these poems forms the basis of the golden spinning wheel. Dvořák casts familiar forms, classical forms, completely aside and makes the story of Erben's poem the basis of the musical argument. It's a pretty grisly story, as we'll hear as we go along. Slavic peoples are less inclined to pussyfoot, I think, than the Victorian English, but we'll hear more of that in due course. So let's hear how Dvořák sets Urban's story, with the aid of the BBC Symphony Orchestra and our conductor, Neil Thompson. Now, it's important to know all these story elements because there are none of the conventional classical formal procedures to guide us. It's the story that decides the musical form. The Golden Spinning Wheel opens with the young lord out hunting on horseback. Cellos, basses, percussion and contrabassoon give us the pounding horse's hoofbeats. And then we hear horns and pastoral oboes afterwards singing what's unmistakably a hunting song.
Believe it or not, that's virtually the entire contrabassoon part for the entire work we've just heard there. That's all the poor contrabassoonist gets to play, just those Fs at the bottom there. So I think we ought to give him a round of applause for his contribution. <laughs> Actually, Dvorak has a habit of doing things like that. There's a famous passage in the Ninth Symphony, the New World Symphony, where the poor old tuba only has seven notes at the beginning and seven notes at the end of the slow movement. And I remember the LSO tuba player, John Fletcher, telling me about how often he had to fight his way through London traffic to get to the concert hall just to play his 14 notes. And as he said, they're not even very good notes either. Not in a part of the tuba register that tuba players like playing. But to go back to the poetry, Dvorak doesn't just draw inspiration from the poem in a kind of misty sort of way. There are parts of this work, in fact, some people say virtually the whole of this work, in which, in a sense, he actually sets Erben's poetry. Well, luckily for us, after a century and a half, someone has at last done a proper translation just in time for this program. We're indebted to Susan Reynolds for her fine verse translation of Urban's poem. In her version, the first two lines of the poem are, all around the woods, broad acres lie, a lord comes riding, riding by. In Czech, that's, okululeza polilan, hoi jeda jedasleza pan. Now, bear that rhythm in mind and listen to what the horns were playing in that extract we've just heard. There you have it, an almost word-for-word, word, you could say, setting of Peter Urban's poetry. It's said that you could take virtually the whole of this orchestral work, The Golden Spinning Wheel of Dvorak, and put the words of Peter Urban's poem above it which is very handy for our purposes because it allows us to pinpoint to a nicety the exact spots in the poem that Dvorak is talking about. Uh, it's very interesting that this piece obviously seems to have been an influence on the young, later composer, Czech composer, Janacek. Janacek himself made a habit of going around villages and towns with a notebook, noting down the way people spoke, and then trying to write versions of what they said, how they said it in terms of rhythms and melodies, which he later used in his operas. But this idea that you can use orchestral instruments to set poetry must have been a very important influence for Janacek. But back to the story. The Lord stops at a cottage in the forest where he's hunting to ask for water. He sees a lovely maiden, Dornichka, with the inevitable consequences. She brings him the water and sweet muted solo strings, and a curvaceous corps anglais give us her portrait. Yes, I think we get the picture. The Lord is smitten, but very demurely and properly, Dornitscher goes back to her spinning wheel in the corner of the cottage. And we can hear the sound of the spinning wheel now, played by the cellos and the violas. Mm -hmm. 
And this is the whole text here. You'll hear the wheel spinning in the background, while above it, you hear Dornichka's curvaceous theme that the Corps Anglais played a moment ago on the clarinets. Here's the spinning of the wheel and the girl sitting at the spinning wheel. Now, this lord is pretty quick off the mark. He's hardly heard these sounds, and already he's declaring his love. It does happen like that in fairy tales. And he does so in the passage that we heard at the very beginning of the program. But Dornichka says she can't marry without her stepmother's consent. Funny how it's always stepmothers in fairy stories, isn't it? Anyway, the violins you'll hear declaring the lord's love, and then we'll hear Dornichka very demurely going back to her spinning. It's as though Dvorak's telling us that she obviously doesn't want to get too involved at this stage. Well, this very proper, modest behaviour of the beautiful Dornichka only makes the Lord more ardent and determined. He resolves to come back and get the stepmother's consent. So we hear a return of that riding music we heard at the beginning of the programme and a last little contribution from our friend the contrabassoonist. And then we hear the Lord coming back and there's a musical portrait of the stepmother herself. Now it's pretty clear from the way Dvorak describes her, even if you don't know Urban's poem, that she's no oil painting. I think the music makes that pretty clear. We get a kind of spooky tremolo on the strings and a rather sinister bassoon sound and just for added effect a little tingling sort of silvery sound on a suspended cymbal. Maybe this is her ugliness or perhaps it registers the Lord's reaction when he sees her face for the first time. She really does sound like a nasty piece of work, doesn't she? And so it turns out in the context of the story, because the Lord orders the stepmother to bring Dornichka to his castle. So she sets out with Dornichka and her own daughter through the forest. But it's all about to turn very nasty, as the cellos and basses make quite clear.
This is where the story gets really grisly. The stepmother and her foul, ambitious daughter kill Dornichka. They cut off her hands and feet and gouge out her eyes, leaving her body in the forest. And this is how Dvorak depicts it. almost as though you can hear the life ebbing away on the harp at the end there. But the Lord meets the stepmother and her own daughter and mistakes this false Dornichka for the real girl. I know they say love is blind, but you know, you sometimes have to suspend disbelief in fairy tales. And he marries her. There are some big celebrations. You can't miss those in the music. Then the Lord has to go to war. And there's a tender farewell scene between him and the fake Dornichka. Listen out for the spinning wheel undulations on strings and harp. That's because the Lord tells his wife to keep spinning at her wheel until he comes back from the war. And off he rides into the distance. Meanwhile, in the forest, a mysterious old man finds the remains of Dornichka's body. At this point, cue a funeral march for brass and timpani.
the old man summons a young boy, and he gives him a golden spinning wheel and sends him to the castle to offer the fake Dornichka this golden spinning wheel in exchange for the parts of the murdered girl's body. First the feet, then the hands, then the eyes, which presumably for some grisly reason she's kept. Now this involves sending the lad three times. It's strange how often in fairy tales things seem to happen in threes. You think of Goldilocks and the three bears with the three bowls of porridge and the three beds and the three chairs, only one of which is right in each case. So we hear more or less the same thing three times in Dvorak's tone poem. First of all, we hear the lad hurrying off with the golden wheel. And then we hear the flute, which is his voice, asking the fake Dornichka if she will give him the parts of the real girl's body in exchange for the golden spinning wheel. And we can hear her response on the bassoons, a hint that she's really in her soul as ugly as her ghastly mother, who we heard early on. There's a strong similarity between the themes. As I said, we hear the process three times. We hear the old man giving the order, the boy hurrying to the castle and negotiating with the false Dornichka. And then the old man takes the parts of the real Dornichka and covers them with magic water, which brings Dornichka back to life. We hear her theme on the core anglais and the solo strings transformed with delicate harp harmonics. And I think this is time to acknowledge the special contribution of our guest leader tonight, Cleo Gould. The Lord returns victorious from the wars. We hear the galloping bass and the hunting horns again. He's enormously impressed with this golden spinning wheel that his wife has acquired, so he asks her to spin for him. Now you'll hear the violins give the wheels beginning to turn, but as the creaking of the spinning wheel starts, a voice emerges from the golden spinning wheel, and the voice tells the story of what really happened in the forest. Thank you. 
sow the secrets out. The Lord hurries to the forest and finds Dornichka alive. And the love music returns, now even more fully and richly orchestrated. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear Dornichka's theme itself on the clarinets after the first big outpouring. That's Dvorak's way of telling us that this time he's got the right girl. <laughs> Well, not quite, actually, because there's the question about what to do about the two murderesses. Carol Urban's poem has a fittingly gruesome end for them. They follow the Lord to the forest, but get torn to pieces by wolves. And at this point, the golden spinning wheel vanishes, so there's no chance of anyone putting them back together again. But Dvorak seems to have turned either a bit squeamish at this point or decided that maybe it was better to end on a note of rejoicing because he omits their dreadful end and goes straight into the kind of the nuptial celebrations and there's a terrific exultant major key dancing ending. But we'll, we'll leave that for the performance when I hope that these short extracts will have helped explain how the musical narrative of this orchestral work works. Before then, as promised earlier, are there any questions? If you have any questions, could you put your hands up and my assistant here will come amongst you with the microphone. Has anybody any questions they'd like to ask? What proportion of Dvorak's works were took this form, storytelling form? It's not a big proportion of his work in terms of total output. And Dvorak's output is absolutely huge. He wrote an extraordinary amount of music in, in his, his lifetime. In his youth, he was very impressed by Wagner's music and rather moved by it. But then he seemed to have decided that his allegiance was going to be with Brahms, and that meant being a neoclassicist. But it's interesting, isn't it, that once Brahms was out of the way, Dvorak obviously felt that he could indulge this more romantic side of his character, and out came these works, including, indeed, the, the New World Symphony, which is a symphony with a title and a kind of program, which is very different from the other eight that he'd written before. So it's not a big proportion in terms of his total output, but it's highly significant, particularly in that it comes towards the end of his life. It was obviously something that he'd been looking forward to and perhaps secretly yearning to do for quite some time. Did Dvorak work in collaboration with the poet? Do we know what the poet thought of this setting? That's an interesting question. 
I don't think he did work in collaboration with Erben, and I can't tell you, I'm afraid, whether they actually met. Um, he does seem to have enjoyed, as a lot of composers do, the opportunity just to take the source of inspiration and work with it himself. I mean, he, he, did, he wrote, for instance, earlier on a tone poem based on Shakespeare's Othello, where it's very clear that he enjoyed not having the playwright around him to tell him how he should write the story, because he rewrites it and completely alters the orders of things and even gives it a suggestion of a happier ending. So I think in this case, for instance, the ending of Erben's poem, where there's justice meted out to the two wicked women, that Dvorak left that out. Maybe if Erben had been around, he would have said, no, I insist on that being in. So I, I, certainly this is true today. I often find that composers are happier when there isn't someone looking over their shoulder proprietorily and saying, that's how it ought to be. It's better if your imagination has free reign. So I, I would be surprised if there was that much collaboration between them. For his other tone poems, did he take the same approach of following the rhythm of the literary work as, as, as he did in this one? No, this seems to have been a one-off. Even the case of Othello that I mentioned earlier on, where in the score he wrote very detailed stage directions, as it were, on the orchestral part, indicating which part of the story he was thinking of. He doesn't appear to have taken, as it were, a Czech version, say, of Shakespeare's text and tried to set it musically. But I wonder if it was maybe something to do with his discovery of the music of Berlioz, because the great French romantic composer of the earlier part of the 19th century had written a symphony based on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And someone recently has found the actual French translation that Berlioz knew of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and discovered that whole swathes of it are almost kind of wordless musical settings of Shakespeare. So it's quite possible that Dvorak knew that example and decided to give it a try in this work in particular. But it was clearly a very liberating experience from him because in a sense it brought it much closer to the substance of the, of the Czech folk music that he was becoming more and more involved with at this stage in his career. And I mentioned the influence on Janáček. Someone once asked me why it is, for instance, that so many of Janáček's pieces end not with an emphatic plonk, as you expect you know, in a lot of classical music, but often on a weak beat, they'll end with a bum papa or a papam, something like that. And the explanation for that is rooted in language, because the Czech language, you always stress the first syllable. But there are very few nouns of one syllable so almost inevitably, a Czech sentence will end on a weak beat, which means that the folk music that sets this music always ends on weak beats. So often you listen to Czech folk music, you'll notice that it ends not with an emphatic plonk, but on a, on a weak note, as it, as it were, a weak rhythm. And the reason for that is the, is, is the correspondence to the language. And this is something, obviously, that was very important for Jacques. It increased his own identification, not just with the melodic contours of folk music, but the language in which it was rooted. So this is, this is a work of real nationalist self-discovery, I think, for Dvorak, a very important, pivotal work in that respect. We have one more question over in the corner. Do you think it's necessary for the performers themselves to know the story, and do you think it makes difference to the audience? That's a very interesting question, because the conductor told me before we came on tonight that various members of the orchestra have been asking him questions like, why does this bit happen three times? So obviously they haven't been through the story very closely. But I remember this, or maybe some of you have, I don't know. <laughs> I think you'll have to ask them after the performance tonight, maybe we should ask them whether they think it's made any difference to the way that they actually perform the piece to know what each part is supposed to represent. 
But Dvorak certainly meant you, the listeners, to know this. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There was a very strongly rooted prejudice in the 20th century, and particularly in the post-war academic thinking, that somehow or other stories in music or illustrative music was somehow or other rather a poor kind of music, that the best kind of music was pure music, absolute music that spoke in its own terms. That was certainly the kind of standard I was taught when I was at university. But I don't think there's any doubt in this case, because the many details in the form, like that whole business of the passage that's repeated so that we hear it three times, it doesn't make any sense unless you know what's going on at this point in the story. So I think it's certainly important for you to know it, as for the orchestra, well, maybe we'll be able to tell from the quality of the performance we're about to hear now. Anyway, thank you very much for your questions. It's time now that we heard the performance of Dvorak's The Golden Spinning Wheel by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, leader Cleo Gould, conducted by Neil Thompson. <laughs> 